I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest in the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, writers and journalists of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. Today we focus on the future of teaching with award-winning writer, teacher and journalist Kate Clancy. Her latest book, Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me, looks back over her 30-year career in state schools and argues that teaching today is too often demeaned, diminished and drastically under-resourced. And she argues why it shouldn't be. Kate, I'd like to start by talking to you about the perception of teachers here in the UK because I think sometimes it's very different from the way that teachers are perceived in other countries. They sort of have a slightly lower standing, which seems awful when you think of the precious job that they do do you think that that's a fair assessment and, and why yeah I do it's, it's something that you know I became conscious of because I changed jobs or or I had two jobs at the same time so I, w- I was a teacher um, and then I started to become a writer and a journalist and I was conscious that you know out in the world as a journalist people listened to what you said you had a whole different kind of status you were considered more professional, which is extraordinary because, you know, journalists are scurrilous people that do all sorts of things and teachers are very worthy people. I think it's it's got less status within the professions. For working class people, a teacher may be the first person with higher education that they meet. They've got, you know, much more status that way. But for but for within the middle classes, teachers are definitely lower down the pe- pecking order. And that's partly to do with salary. I mean, if you think about it in Finland... Teachers are very highly regarded. They mostly have higher degrees. They are also paid two-thirds of what a doctor is paid, whereas in this country we're paid a third of what a doctor is paid most of the time. Now, you're a prize-winning poet and also a novelist. Talking about the idea of the perception of teachers, very Mm. often people would think that you would then give up teaching when you got to those lofty heights. It's not something you've done. In fact, you know, you've been working as a teacher for 30 years across state schools. Tell me about the relationship between teaching and your own writing. Well, when I started off writing, I was teaching full time and writing was kind of my hobby. Um, And then I've been very lucky. So teaching is now kind of my hobby. I'm able to do it very part time. I've been doing this job just a couple of days a week, being the writer in residence at my school. Um, and so I've been able to have much more joy in it and be much more self-determined than most teachers. I think that I wouldn't have been able to write the book I wrote if I was teaching full time because it's, it's a very creative job. It drains your creativity in very much the same way you know, as, as writing a book. So I kind of have parallel lives between the two and I'm always in a bad mood I'm always saying oh, I'm spending too much time with my teacher I'll never get my writing done I'm spending much too much time doing this I'll never get my lesson plan done but I think you know it's been a pretty productive relationship really. We'll talk a little bit more about being a writer in residence but I want to talk first about the inclusion unit you worked in inclusion a lot and I just want to start off by if you could explaining to us what ex- what inclusion is. Yeah well um, the inclusion unit was the first place I had a permanent contract in sort of when my youngest child was three, you know, when I was going back into into schools, when my, when my own children were a little bit bigger. Um, and I remember thinking that the term was funny. I remember thinking that the, this is the inclusion unit, ha-ha, they mean the exclusion unit, because it was, that's what it was. It was the place where the kids who would otherwise have to have to be excluded were held. But my cynicism about that term really dissipated over the year because it was run by extraordinarily 
able teachers. And it really was about including. It was about holding those kids in the school, um, holding them within the community and helping them to be included. And it's um, from that experience and the other years I did there, I, th- I think I have learned to be more inclusive in my own practice. And I, w- I always have an inclusion group in school. I've all, For the last 10 years, I've always had an inclusion group. So I've always had a group of kids who the school uses different terms, pupil premium, which means that they're on free school meals or at risk, um, meaning that they're at risk of dropping out on different sort of lists. Um, I've always had a group of those to and included them in poetry. So it's, it's been good for me. I'd like to talk about the kind of kids that tend to get excluded. Uh, the former Tory education minister, Edward Timpson, revealed earlier this year that almost eight out of ten children who are permanently excluded from school come from vulnerable backgrounds. Mm. He recommended that schools actually be uh, forced to be accountable for the exam results of the pupils they do exclude. And obviously, well, the thinking behind that is that schools exclude pupils who they think are going to do really badly in exams because it's going to bring down their league table results. From your experience, why do kids get excluded? Is that a reason? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, schools do, for a matter of policy, exclude kids that they can't cope with anymore and that they know are going to bring the results down. But the, the, that should be a reason to have less pressure on exam results and exam data and more allowances for, for working with these kind of kids because that is a real pressure and it does have a real result, you know, and especially when um, there's been a great emphasis in the last 20 years on turnaround, the kind of myth of the terrible school and then the great leader or the great academy trust goes in and turns around the school and turnaround has to be demonstrable and you have to get figures in very quickly and everything has to shine very fast. One of the quickest ways of changing those figures is to remove the kids that you know are going to do badly. Uh, There's a particular sort of child that that happens to and that's the kind of child that in year six has got quite decent SAT results, a clever child from a troubled background. So and then year they, six, they're what, 10, 11? Yeah, 10, mm. 11, and they, they get their fives. You know, they do better than average mm-hmm. because they are clever children. Mm-hmm. And then they hit adolescence and they, the pressures of their lives make them um, behave very badly. And what kind of backgrounds is it possible to say or is that too yeah. much Well, I mean, generally speaking, in, in our school, with it, I have... This is a school where it's only about 20% white kids. Maybe it's a bit more at the moment, but, you know, it's a majority of the kids come from, as, the, as I think it's 70% of primary school kids in London come from BME backgrounds now, which is amazing to think of. Um, our school's very similar demographic to that. It isn't the, school, the, the kids with English as a second language. It isn't the BME kids. Overwhelmingly, it's the white kids from um, not working class backgrounds, from parents who haven't worked from chaotic families, from vulnerable families. Um, And the support for those vulnerable families has been getting less and less and less and less. I mean, we're now getting the children who didn't have Sure Start uh, into Year 7, and that definitely has an impact. Mm -hmm. And the social workers and the family support workers that used to be there aren't there anymore in the family care centres. And so these children roll up to school without support so that they may have an illiterate parent, they may... Um, have a parent who's not capable of managing the family budget. They may have changed parents many times. Overwhelmingly, they have been treated in a way that makes them think that they're not valuable and that they very well must have had a physical or sexual trauma, so they don't feel valuable to themselves. And that makes them angry and it makes them very difficult to teach because, of course, their concentration is poor. And, of course, it's very hard to say 
So it's, it's about rewards is one of the things. If you say, if you do this, this is going to help you in your life. They don't believe that because if you come from a chaotic background where you haven't been rewarded for what you do, then that doesn't make sense. So they're just very vulnerable children that are also extremely... I mean, schools know that, and it's not that teachers are horrible. It's not that they want to hurt these children. But those children can also end learning in your classroom very, very rapidly. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about that because, of course, um, while the picture that you're painting is uh, very vivid and indeed very heartbreaking... Mm -hmm. If you are a pupil in a class where there are a number of vulnerable children, that can really hamper your learning experience. Yes, it can. Yeah. And if you're a teacher, it's mm. immensely stressful because, you, you know, you want to teach. You want to teach your subject. You also you want to teach the quiet child in the, in the room or the very bright child in the room. You want to be able to teach those ones. But when you have a child whose need is enormous, their need will fill the room and they'll fill it with chaos if they can't fill it in, in another way. Um, and I mean, schools do exclude more, but they exclude more because they don't have the resources. The inclusion unit, which I in which I worked, is no longer there. You know, that, mm. that because it's expensive. It's expensive to to staff it, and then the network outside the inclusion unit of social workers and doctors and support workers that's not there either. So those children are much more likely now to be excluded. So the kids that would have gone into your inclusion unit, what happens to them today? They get excluded there on the streets. And the teachers who are in a position where they have to make those decisions, that must be very difficult for them as well. Yes, it's awful. I mean, and I think that teachers, you know, people say teachers get fed up with low pay or whatever. I think what teachers get fed up with most of all is not being able to care for their children the way that they would want to. I mean, to, 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 to see the need, to feel the need in the classroom and then to know that you're not meeting that need. It's just like, you know, everyone knows that. That's why mothers get angry with their children. It's because they're failing them. It's not because the children are bad. It's because the, ch the child's unhappy and they, they, they feel that they're not doing it properly. Teachers feel that as well. You know, if you have a child that's full of need in, in your group and you can't cope, then you become angry and frustrated and want to leave your job. Tell me about what you did then in an inclusion unit because it sounds like an incredibly challenging possibly the most challenging area of teaching that you could possibly have gone Indeed, into you've yeah. got all these kids who by your you know you've said are, have been in terribly vulnerable terribly stressful situations they are so disruptive within a class that they have to be excluded from that class and then and then you have to look after all of them how does that work um well when i have an inclusion groups for poetry they're smaller so i would have um you know, 10 or 12. The most recent inclusion groups, I've had them, they've been year 11, they've, um, they get out of PE, which is always quite a sweetener. Um, I bring them cake, and then we just sit round in a, round a table and write poems. And so I read them poems which they like. Children like poetry much more than you think they do. Teenagers really love a lot of c contemporary poetry, contemporary poetry on video, um, performance poetry. And, and then we write poems and they choose which poems they want to write. Um, and then we, we make them books. So I, I very often either make an anthology for the group or quite, what I've done quite often is make each child a book that's published and printed up for them and that they take away that's a record of what they wrote down. But it, it is about self-esteem. So it's very important from each, for each person to, they write something down and the first thing they then want to do is throw it away. That's very common in um kids I'm working with for inclusion, they, they don't think that anything they've written is worth it. 
So I suppose what I do is go through an endless process of saying, yes, it is. And that starts with catching the crumpled bits of paper and taking them home and, you know, um, typing them up and showing them and then getting them to read to each other and getting them to admire each other's work and trusting each other and then doing it again. Um, and then finally that comes to being a book and, you know, a book that they show their parents or a book that they, sh they share in an event and they take away with them. Um, and, it you know, it... it doesn't cure anyone of anyone. It does seem to cheer them up, generally speaking. Your title, we talked about it a little earlier, your title is Writer-in-Residence at the Oxford Spires Academy. Mm. When you first hear that title, you might think that that's a title for a poet at a private mm -hmm. school, at a public school, perhaps. And yet you're at a state academy mm. with lots of its own challenges. Not many are lucky enough to have a writer-in-residence. Tell me a little bit about why why you got this role and mm. the kind of value that you're able to add? Well, I do have another title, which is um, QTS, Qualified Teacher Status, and PGCE, which is Postgraduate Certificate of Education. You know, I am actually an enrolled teacher. Um, and I think it's having the two, you know, the two skills that, that allow me to do that. Um, Writer in Residence, I think, is quite a good name. And I, I quite relish the fact that other schools don't have it. I mean, it, it it's Eton has them from time to time. And I have worked in private schools from time to time with that hat on. I, I think it's quite important to bring in something that's very prestigious. And I think that's a magical thing about poetry is it's the most democratic of art. So you can just unfold it in a classroom and just get a, look it up on your phone or you can get just show them a poem on a piece of photocopied paper. There the poem is. It's also the highest of arts, the most sort of prestigious. And I think that in being a teacher and being a writer in residence, it's a similar thing that I'm bringing something really very posh in there and all the different access that it brings in there um, and that and that gives all sorts of powerful changes powerful paths and possibilities of change into the classroom and and to, and to the other teachers because I'm saying you know you, why don't you do some writing I've got and I do get the teachers to write and I, I have a newly qualified teacher who's working in the school now who was my student um, 10 years ago and she went off and got first at university and she's writing really very good poems now so she's got that combination of creativity and and teaching working as well. No, I know there's a sizable contingent of refugee and asylum seeking mm. pupils at, at your school. And in your book um you say that in this country we're we're always obliging refugees to tell the story of their arrival. Mm. They have to tell it to border officials, to social workers, housing officers and they know that the consequences of telling the wrong story are dire mm. because it's on that story that they're essentially marked to see if they are able to stay in the country. At your school, these children then often say that they don't remember the, uh, the stories of the homes and the mm. war zones and the families that they left. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the process that you go through um, through the poetry to try and get them to, to, to open up and perhaps to, to tell you or to tell themselves a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a similar story. I mean, they, kids are often, they're always both busting to tell you everything that happened and that they're hugely, hugely anxious about it. And who are you? Where did you come from? How did you get here? Is a story that their parents, is very weighted for their parents. I mean, control of that story is actually one of the sort of unspoken about controls that people, people smugglers put on refugees. They they tell them 
this is the story that the immigration officials are looking for. And they very often tell them to lie when they don't need to lie. But yeah, they, even, they even frighten them. Even the countries that they yeah, came from. Yeah, they, mm. they, they frighten them and get them to tell a lie about birthdays is quite a common thing. They, they, make them, they make them give the children the wrong birthday so that there's a lie that they know about that they can prove so that they can then have a hold on them. What is the right refugee story to tell? That also changes. I know students that ran away from the Taliban directly, who had bombs in their village directly, but they're not classified as refugees because they came from Afghanistan and achieved, and, 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 and that's supposed to be safe. Or kids who came out of Afghanistan because of terrorism again in their village, but because they're Pashto, because they're Sunni, that doesn't qualify them. There's so many different permutations. And then there's also economic migrants and who is and who isn't is, you know, it's just a very, very painful area. But at the same time, they do want to talk. So I hope what a, a poem can be is, you know, this is your story under your control. Many of them come from poem-making backgrounds. So we read a poem, and then if they write their poem, their poem is always going to be a work of art. It's something that they control. They can say what bit of information they want and what bit of information they don't want, and they can remember what they actually remember. That does help you to express yourself in a way that's beautiful and controlled. There's a beautiful poem written by Priya. It's called My Mother Country in, in the book. Um, she's a, a Bengali teenager. Do you think you could read that yeah, poem I'll for us and then poem, we'll talk so, a little bit about it? Yeah, this was when I was... I'd been in the school just a couple of years, really. Um, and I, I, I suppose that the, there is a deeply patronising attitude that I partook of because it's just so universal, which is that um, a child who learns English as a second language will, will never really be as good. That must be a handicap for them, you know. Um, and in fact, I think it's an advantage. I think if you if you get a kid the right way, I think they're listening harder to the sounds of English. Um, and one of the things this was this was a poem that kind of woke me up to that. But, um, and it's in the in in England poems from a school, which is my anthology of poems by my students as well as in in the book, my mother country. I don't remember her in the summer lagoon water sizzling, the kingfisher leaping or even the sweet honey mangoes they tell me I used to love. I don't remember her comforting garment, her saps of date trees providing the meagre earnings for those farmers out there in the gulf under the calidity of the sun, or the mosquitoes droning in the monsoon, or the tipper-tapper of the rain on the tin roofs dripping on the window, I think. It's beautiful, mm, isn't it's it? It's a beautiful poem, mm. yeah. You said that, um, as you put it, it opens a, it's a magic key, really, the poems, to opening many stories. And in that quite short poem, you, mm. she paints such a vivid picture of a whole past. And then she folds it up again. Oh, I don't mm. remember that, I mm. think. You know, she both shows you, I do remember these things. And then she says, oh, but, oh, of course I have to doubt all those things. I have to say I don't remember them it's just very powerful i've just so many kids have written so many versions of that as soon as as soon as i show it to i mean you can do it with you don't have to have lost a country everyone's lost a place um very often people write about their grandparents house or um if they've moved towns it's surprising how conservative children are they really didn't want to move when they were six they didn't think that was fun there's always that feeling of a lost place but children that have lost a country it's very very powerful and so if you just say, don't tell me what did I remember, just tell me some of the things you definitely don't remember or don't remember properly, you know, you don't... What was the smell of that place whose name you don't remember? What was the taste of that place? 
when you don't know where it is on the map? You know, what was the feeling of that person? And so that poem has opened up lots and lots of other poems. In the aftermath of the EU referendum, uh, in the 11 months mm-hmm. after it, there was a surge of about 40% of an increase in, in race and faith-based mm-hmm. hate crimes in England and Wales. And attitudes did appear to harden to those who were seen as other. In your school, I know there is no majority group. And so mm. in, in one sense, there isn't uh, anyone who's Other is hard other. to find. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I just wonder, in a way, everyone is other mm. if they are not from the UK and they can be quite easily made to feel like that. How do you talk to your children about the tensions of what it's like to have lost a country, as you put it, before they were even 10 years old? We try to... Um talk about it in in poetry the students in my school are very very celebratory about their community that is something that comes out very positively and it's very interesting when they go off to example to to university to white places how clear they are about that they come back and they say oh we're so thankful to be back on the Cowley Road where we feel normal because they live in their mixed community and they're very very loyal to that mixed community and the different values it brings Mm. with them and they're very vocal. It's one thing our students are very vocal about is about being anti-racist. And it's interesting, Carly Road, right in the middle yeah, of Oxford, it is um, it's a place that a lot of people around the country perceive as being quite a, a white community, but actually that area they, they, of Oxford isn't. Yeah, there, there is the Oxford-Oxford, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> right in the middle, but um, Oxford's got a very wide fringe to it. It's got a car plant, um, the BMW car plant, which of course is European, ho ho. It's got these enormous hospitals. It's actually it's actually more like you know Aylesbury or Slough. It's it's the continuum. It's very near to Heathrow, um, and there is this area which is in the bottom ten percent of the UK poverty index, Rose Hill, which is um, and which is enormously racially mixed. We have all these different kids. That that genuinely is a community which creates its own loyalties. So there hasn't been an eruption of racist incidents in our school but I think there is more of a feeling of being in battle that if when they, they go out of this community they will meet otherness and criticism. People making the progressive case for immigration will often talk about the economic value of diversity and your book is a it's a kind of a love letter to all these people that you've come across and everything that they've taught you um, and indeed how beautiful diversity is not just economically useful. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how optimistic you are, um, as you put it, that we can tune into this voice of our New England inflected with all the accents of the world. It's a, it's a lovely thought, but I wonder if you're as optimistic as you were. Yeah, it, it, they, these, they have, it has been a depressing few years. You know, when um, I put together England poems from a school, the years that those were put together, it, that was a sort of a rising tide of diversity and acceptance, and I don't really... It's hard to understand what has happened. That I have a quite a profile on Twitter. I now have nearly sixteen thousand followers, and that's the students' poems I put up. And there's undoubtedly an appetite for those, an audience for those. Um, one poem I put up for a kid, there were two million views. I mean, that's an awful lot. There's a huge. What so, kind so of responses do you get? They just people want that goodness and that genuine voice and that diversity and they want to hear from it and they feel a need to hear from it and people to affirm that this 
um, our country, which lets in refugees, which gives people a fair chance, which is optimistic, which is tolerant. I mean, the south of England is so tolerant. London is such a mixed place. This is where we have the most diverse mixed marriages, where we have genuine friendships, where people genuinely can progress and change. Um, and I'm really tired of hearing, oh, you must be an elite and you must be living in an echo chamber if you believe that's right. I think it's ethical. I, I believe it's right. And um, I'm so glad that to have sent my children to a multicultural school where they can see all of those things and where they can see people's humanity first. I think it's better to see people's humanity first and that we don't, um, we need to celebrate that. And that's what, you know, England Poems from a School is about. And that's what I try to do in my in my practice. I try to get kids to write about their journey and their difference. And, and we can join that together in poetry and celebrate it. And that's a good thing to do. And it also, it's, you know, positive. It's positive for our society. It will make better workers. It will make a better way for us all to live. Um, and I, I suppose Twitter is kind of a double-edged thing that, you know, that there is this appetite, there it is. And yet we're always being told that this is the, you know, the voice of an elite. And it's, we need, we need to kind of get beyond echo chambers. We need to be, be heard by other people. If we're going to do that, then I think we have to believe in ourselves. So maybe we should just stop. I suppose that's part of, part of what the book says. It's, says let's be very positive about this. I want to come on to the uh, thorny issue of school choices. Um, you're quite humorous about this in your book. You talk about a story about uh, a, a boy who comes to school and he's talking about mixed ability and talking mm. about misstability mm-hmm. as, yeah. as if this is a teacher at the school. Yeah. Um, you also say that in this country, when parents are looking at secondary schools, it's sometimes makes them a little bit crazy certainly does and I think that a lot of our listeners and a lot of people can that resonates with them either because of the choices that they've made or having to sit at endless dinner Mm. parties listening to other people banging on about what schools are going to send their kids to or not so I want to ask you first about that idea of school choices and just personalize it a little bit for Mm. you because you had to make some choices about what school to send your your eldest son mm. to when it came to his A levels, and I think that was, in a way, it was uh, quite eye opening for you to see. Well, the I mean, I sent my son to the the school I teach him, mm-hmm. um, and that was in itself difficult in its t- in, as a decision because when I sent him there, it, it, he was the first middle class child. Mm-hmm. Would, so that I was mean, quite a political choice. It was, and um, yes, I mean, and it was quite difficult, and. I mean, I remember a member of staff leaning out the window and saying, your child's got a bicycle helmet. We haven't seen a bicycle helmet for years. <laughs> obviously, you know, making a joke about it. Um, he was very well loved and very well cared for at that school, and he got stupendous results. But yeah, it was political, and people looked at you. There's a kind of judgment fest that goes on, and anxiety fest, because how can you do en- enough for your child? And one of the things I, I was trying to think about when I made those decisions for Michael when he was 11, when we made those decisions together, was... It's not just what your child gets. And I think you get a lot, a lot of pressure that if you make the wrong decision, your child's going to get the wrong thing. And, you, you know, you've got to provide for the child. But it is also what your child gives and what you as a family give. And if you've got to think of yourself as being part of a whole community um, and your child is... My child's got quite a considerable patrimony because he's musical, he uh, comes from a very academic family, he's, he, he did loads of maths tutoring. The day before maths GCSE, everyone in his class gave him a hug so the smarts would wear off. This did not work. <laughs> but, you know, or maybe it did. I don't know. <laughs> they, did make, they made good progress. But I think that showed that he was an integrated person. Mm. Mm. But that was a, that was a fraught, politicised decision. 
For his sixth form, we sent him to the the comprehensive with a great reputation with a fabulous, enormous sixth form, huge sixth form, like a sixth form college. And that, that again, was a series of difficulties because the A-level system in this country and the underfunding of the A-level that's come recently means that if you're going to offer effective A-levels like this, this school does, you have to exclude about a third of the other kids. They have to go somewhere else. So I could see you know, the whole community that he, my son had been educated in, dividing again, sheep and goats. And in order for him to go to this um, school where he's going to get, again, he got fantastic A-levels, we were then making a decision for him to go to effectively to a more selective place. Mm-hmm. And in terms of selection within a school, in terms of mixed ability classes or setting, <laughs> I, I was really interested in what you wrote in the book because to me it sounds very counterintuitive. Um, not to not to set children because it seems that both for those who find it more difficult to learn a subject and those who are very bright, it would be better to be in a class with more like-minded kids, with kids kids that are at the same academic level that are working in a, in a similar academic level. Tell me why that's not a good idea. Well, I mean, I <laughs> there are many many arguments and bits of academic research on it every bit of research tells you that a very bright kid does just as well in a mixed ability set whereas a bottom set kid does worse or actually it's not the bottom set kids it's set three because and that's if you think about it yourself if you just think about something you've failed at set three so that's the third quarter yeah the the third quarter um become extremely demotivated and unhappy and do much worse. And, and that's, that's that simple thing about teaching. I mean, if I think about what did I actually learn in 30 years in teaching, I learned that it's so easy to make people feel bad. Um, and if you, think, if you think about the times you've been told in your life that you failed, and I'm sure they're extremely few, but if you think about them, they, <laughs> I wouldn't be too they, sure. they, they burn, they mm. hurt. Mm. And every time you tell somebody they're set three or set four, then you are hurting them and burning them and lowering their self-esteem in a way that's incredibly difficult to get back. And that's the cost of setting. But there is a cost of not setting, which is, especially when you have an exam system like we have, that things become, especially if you've got 30 kids in a class, it becomes almost brutally impossible. So, I mean, I think I'm probably in favour of sending all the kids to the same school and setting them humanely. So that is flexibly. Um, not giving in to the deep teacher's temptation, which is to put the worst teacher with the worst set. Right. And let everyone go downhill. Mm-hmm but to be positive. Um, set fours in my, cl- in my school, the b- bottom sets are where I go for my poets. I either go to the top set or the bottom set because you get really interesting kids. And uh, set four is tackled incredibly positively in our school. They've got strong teachers in there, lots of teaching assistants, lots of love. And they put them in set four so that they can, they put all, the set ones are very big. Set twos are very big so that set four can be small so that they can help them. So, you know, that's not... That's actually and the poor set thing. three doesn't get a look in again. Set three is does as well as it can do. And the trouble about set three is, you know, nobody wants to be in there and um, nobody wants to tease them, really, because they're, they're clever enough to give you trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're angry. They know that they're being done down. And also we have such a sheep and goats exam system that's going to enforce people at GCSE and tells them that they failed. And already they know in year nine that they're probably not going to come through on that one. There isn't, you know, there isn't really much for carrot. Stick is not a lot of fun. You know, those things really, there are so many things I would like to change about the British education system, but GCSE would be a huge one if we could just actually let people progress and then examine them when or when they were 18. I think that we would have much more chance for a humane system. That's really interesting. So you think that actually there shouldn't be exams at 16. I suppose the the problem is what about those 
people who don't want to stay in education until well, they're, they're 18. They're now legally obliged to. They have to stay in educational training until they're 18. So we've got this paradox that you've got to tell them they failed at 16 and then keep them on until they're 18. And that's not fun because telling people they failed is a permanent in- injury. No, I think we should be doing like every other country in Europe and offering people options at 14 mm-hmm. and then examining them at 18 because there are plenty of 14-year-olds that don't want to be in a very academic school and they can do discussion and we should have much better vocational training as we do in places like Germany and France. And then we should examine people, if we're going to examine them, at 18. This 16, the GCSE is an overhang of a system when we chuck people out at 16 and when there were people that were going to work in an office and people that were going to work in a field. And we don't have that divide anymore and we shouldn't have the exam system that goes with it. That's really interesting. I'd like to also ask you about private schools, public schools. You know, we know the statistics that uh, people holding top jobs in politics, media, mm. judiciary, business. I mean, there's endless statistics them, yeah. that lots yeah. of them went to public schools. And I wonder why you think that is. How much of it is about the education they received, the actual education? How much of it is about perhaps the confidence or sense of entitlement that they were given? And how much is about the way that maybe employers or institutions treat people who still have that old school tie or that badge of having been to not necessarily a top public school, but any private school? I think that's a huge parcel of the whole thing. Mm. I grew up in the 70s, so I grew up with the idea that we were becoming equal. You thought it was all going to be over. And and that we were going to be more equal. That was Mm -hmm. the promise that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And, you know... The only promise that's been delivered is, is iPhones, as far as I can see. We were promised jetpacks, we were promised equality, and none of these things have arrived. Where are the hoverboards? And where are the hoverboards? But definitely the equality would be good. Instead of that, I've seen rising inequality to the point where that's endangering all of us. And the rise of the public pri- private schools, the cleverness of the private schools... I think the thing that most deeply bothers me because of who I am and the job I do is the way that the private schools have bought the arts. And that now... The arts are being done down in the state sector. And if you're going to be an our actors already come out of Eton and Harrow, um, the directors, the musicians, the visual arts now. Why are is coming that though? Is that because they have the facilities and they have the time and the resources? Well, yes, they have They have all of those and they invest in them and they, they're able to believe in them. Whereas we have an exam system that says you shouldn't do them for your EBAC and um, unbelievable pressures and huge classes and all the rest of it. But it's about the belief. And the sense of entitlement as well. I mean, that, that is what's enviable in private schools for me is um, that, em- that emphasis and belief in the, in the arts. You also say um, in your book that the law of the country treats church schools as pretty harmless, kind of antique, but they're not. Tell us what you mean by this. I think church schools are allowed to carry on and be instruments of exclusion and inclusion in a quite astonishing way, actually. I don't and in a state funded way. In a state funded mm. way. I don't know why the state has to fund the Catholic school up the road for me. I just don't know. I don't know why we had to open a Catholic primary and say these children are Catholic and these children are not. It it seems to me illogical, ahistorical, and an instrument of just class division, really. People use that to um, exacerbate class difference so that they can get a little bit of extra advantage for their child. And I just don't think we should have it at all. I think if we have a state system, we should have a state system. And within that state system, grammar schools, you think, are, have no place? No, they have no place. Grammar schools, I mean, I, 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 as I've just said, I think ideally we would divide at 14. And I think that we should have more options at 14 and that there should be better vocational education and there should be much more care. But 
I don't think grammar schools, the extent to which they were used as an instrument of smart working class boys mm. progressing is greatly exaggerated. They're overwhelmingly, can do you look at the places where they work, like in Kent, and what they do is create a very divided system where the schools around, the comprehensives, which aren't comprehensives, they're secondary moderns, suffer immensely, and where there's huge pressure on those children to get into the grammar schools. The children that do get into the grammar schools are overwhelmingly middle class. They have something like 1% free school meals, don't they? It's just disgraceful. And to think that we should have more of those and that would help people. Well, in, in my book, I say that the law of grammars, you've just got to remember, for each grammar school, you create three secondary moderns. It's like an enormous set three. You're creating a whole school full of set three. And that is just not a good idea. Nobody who'd want to... The other thing that people never, never think of is who'd want to teach in a secondary modern? If you were a teacher, where would you go? The grammar school or the secondary modern? If you're an enterprising, bright school teacher, you want to go to the grammar school. And therefore, they get doubly deprived. It's like saying, here we'll have a whole school that's set three and we'll give them the weak teachers. Uh, and that is just not good enough for any child to have to go there. I'd like to talk to you more about creativity and the arts education. We've touched on this already, but we know that uptake of music and drama at GCSE have fallen. As a teacher of creative writing, what else is lost by the vast majority of children not having the kind of advantages that we talked about kids at private schools having to indulge in the, the arts and drama? Well, the arts and drama are many, many things. Their cultural capital, their access, their absorption. If you think about what you had your, your best lesson at school, it was probably a creative one. The thing you remember would be a creative one. Their access into all other subjects. They're a human right. <laughs> they're, they're, they're all of those things. They're also an emotional education. And one of the things we're rising now is the concern of the idea of mental health as a sort of add-on thing. I mean, I think there's even quizzes in mental health you can do now and teachers are supposed to teach mental health between, you know, 10 past 9 and 20 past 9 and go through all of these questions. Mental health and emotional education are much better delivered through literature and engagement with art and engagement with music because that's where you learn it. I mean, I think... People always laugh about English teachers, you know, they're always talking about sex, whatever. Yes, English teachers always are. English teachers are in charge of your Sex emotional... and death, as I remember. They're in charge of sex and death. They're in charge of your emotional education. Um, and if you are able to teach writing and if you're able to allow people to have an emotional response to things and if you're able just to teach Macbeth properly, damn it, then you will be teaching an emotional education and teachers need, instead of being told, now you're going to do mental health every Friday between 9 and 10, teachers need to feel empowered to do that and helped and listened to and able to talk about it and talk about that aspect of their work because it's important. I can imagine listeners to this thinking, well, really, you know, is drama and creative arts really being squeezed? Surely they are on the curriculum and they do exist whether or not you have the facilities to have a stupendous theatre. Everybody gets the opportunity to do those at school. Is that not the case? Um, they, n it's not, they're not on the EBAC and choice, the number of children opting to do them are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Just, just explain what the EBAC is for people Sorry, the, who don't the, have the, kids the, who are the, going through this the, at the, the moment. E, the EBAC is um, one of Michael Gove's inventions and it is a way of saying that it's the English baccalaureate mm. um, and it's five GCSEs, which are sort of hard GCSEs. It was designed so that I mean, most of the Gove curriculum is designed to make more people fail. 
Um, and this was designed to say that anyone who'd done so-called soft GCSEs was you know, a failure. It's supposed to give you five hard GCSEs and you have to do maths and you have to do English and you have to do um, sciences and a language and a humanity, but they excluded an art. Um, and, you know, the people made a fuss at the time. It didn't sound very major, but the drip, drip, drip of... When it's combined with ever-dropping budgets... It, the encouragement of a school not to offer GCSE music. If you think about it, GCSE music is, always, music is a minority subject. You'll probably only have 15 in that class. That's very expensive. In straightened times when teachers, head teachers are you know, cleaning their own loos or whatever they're up to, they probably shouldn't be doing that, then we, you can't afford a GCSE music class. And so then what kind of music are you teaching? Well, you can teach the kind of music that doesn't actually need a musician. And that's a decision that's been made very rapidly in a lot of schools. Similarly with drama, you know, you, if you don't, if you're not going to do drama GCSE, which is a bit noisy and needs a big room, then you can just do it as a bit of English. Then there's you've lost your drama teacher. There's a very moving chapter in your book where you talk about uh, health and poverty. Poor people are less well than rich people, to put it very basically. Um, and the additional complexities that those health-related issues introduce into the classroom, uh, it's another example of the huge amount of juggling that teachers have to do when they're looking after children from poor backgrounds. And you question very honestly the value of the work that you're doing in light of these challenges and the fact, indeed, that you're not... Um, a trained psychiatrist. I mean, this, it, must be, it must be very difficult and challenging to have to come up to, against day after day a whole other set of issues. Yeah, I think, again, because I'm part-time, I, feel, mm. I, I do feel lucky and I, I have time to consider it. Um, this, that's, this is what I call the therapist question. Every time I read some of the, you know, from my book or I read some of the kids' poems in a you know, in a literary festival mm. or in any kind of audience, there's always a psychotherapist. And the psychotherapist always says, and what therapy are you getting? And what they mean is, are you qualified? And it's something that I have thought about a lot over the years as I was doing it. You know, am I qualified to hear the stories mm -hmm. when these, when the, and should I be doing something with the stories? And actually what I think is storytelling is a thing that human beings do and um, have always and we, done. And have always it's a done. Basic, yeah. Such a basic such part a basic of our thing. world, yeah. isn't it? You, you, meet, you meet the person from the other tribe, you learn the sounds of their language, and then you learn their poem, and then you tell the story. That's just a very basic thing that people must have been doing since evolution began. I, I think where it's just an entitlement and something that we want to do. And I think a story is a safe place. I never say to anybody, I've never in my whole practice said, let's write a sad story, or let's write a story about your mum, ever. What I do is say, here's a poem. It's got a nice sound and a nice shape. Let's see if we can write one that sound and that shape. And then sometimes a kid will choose to write something that's actually very sad or very personal within that sound and shape. But they'll have made something that's beautiful, that has a sound and a shape, and we'll, we'll be focusing on that. And then what I do is receive it as a poem, as a work of art, and tell them why it's good and encourage them and, and, you know, and make it look, you know, type it up, put it in a book, do all of the different sort of framing, congratulatory hearing things. I try and hear it and give it back to them. And actually, I feel quite safe doing that. I, I don't feel any of the things that the therapist asking the question feels I should feel, which is out of control or overloaded or any of those things. Um, I, you know, I, I listen, I tell, I listen, I tell. It, we, we tell each other, we talk, we have other people in the room. 
I think my practice is okay. You mentioned out of control there, and actually in the book you talk a lot about how this can give children and indeed all of us a sense of control to be able to tell your own story, to be in charge of that. Yeah, because that's 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 what I'm doing. I'm not I'm not saying tell me the truth about you ever. I'm always saying let's write a poem or let's speak a poem, let's listen to a poem. And I I think I think a poem is a very safe place. Um, And I think it's a little bit sad that somehow we've forgotten that you know and and again that's part of the saying let's do mental health on a friday between nine and ten yes that's a mental health thing i'm not doing it for mental health i'm doing it for poetry we can have it all as a parcel we don't have to say we're doing mental health poetry or poetry therapy we're doing poetry and if you are more in control of your expression and you feel everyone feels better if they feel that someone's heard them and everyone feels better if they feel they've made something beautiful and said what they actually meant so of course you feel better if you write a poem, but I'm not really a specialist in making people feel better. I am a specialist in helping people write poems, so that's what I do. Now, your school, the school that you've been at for a decade, has gone from being one of the uh, most undersubscribed schools in the area to being one of the most sought after. Mm. Where would you put poetry <laughs> in in that mix as to having made it a much more popular well, I'm school? I'm sure it didn't do. The head teacher um, did it. But she was a drama teacher and she put the arts mm. and performance and at the, at the heart of the school. And that's very powerful. You get schools which are sport at their heart and they have a particular character. They're very competitive. Everyone wants to be on the team and you get people who are sort of excluded from that. But our, our, our school put the arts and poetry was the most successful thing. That's when the most kids succeeded and they succeeded in the world. It meant, it meant a huge amount to the kids to see people win poetry competitions and succeed in the mm-hmm. world and come out and, you know, get Oxford places at Oxford University or whatever to come out. That, that, that raised expectations enormously. It made them feel really good. Do you think it helps them uh, to get, gain a place, for example, in English would be the obvious mm. one. But do you feel that learning poetry... Um, and enjoying poetry and being able to write poetry gives them a different, a bigger, a, a wider breadth, and not yeah. just being able to go and do those arts arts. Yeah, courses. I mean, well, I'm very proud of um, Shukriya Rezaei, who's in that book. So she came, she's Hazara, she came from Afghanistan. She came at the age of 14, and um, she, she was really didn't have very much English, but she was already writing poems. She came from a kind of oral poetry background, and she was in my Very Quiet Foreign Girls poetry group. Um, and she didn't quite get her... G- she got good GC- GCSEs, which was amazing, but she couldn't quite get her A-levels because her English was incredibly good, but she couldn't do it fast enough. She couldn't write fast enough. And she the first time around, she didn't get the right A-levels, and she stayed on for an extra year and helped me in school and helped all the EAL kids. And she got a scholarship to Goldsmiths University, and she's there, and she's doing incredibly well in her degree. And she went to the UN this summer, um, and she told, told them about her Hazara people and she wrote, read the poem that she wrote um, called My Hazara People, which she wrote for me when she was 14. And that's, I'm so proud of her. She is so empowered. And that is to do with her telling her story and feeling in charge of her expression. But also that she's deeply a poet. She speaks in images. She sees the world in a very sensual, beautiful way um, and has really got something to say. So that's... Very proud of that story. Could we hear that poem? Yeah, My Hazara People. So she was really young. She was um, she was just literally 14 and this was her English was embryonic. But she was working with a girl from Tanzania and she helped her. My Hazara People. I can't write about my Hazara people who have suffered for decades in Afghanistan, where they come from, 
in Pakistan where they are murdered, in Iran where they offend because of their almond-shaped eyes. I can't write about how loud the shooting was just two miles away from my house, how my aunt fainted, how nervous my mum got, how the cup fell from her hand. I can't write about how innocent people died, how the martyrs' necropolis gets bigger and bigger, how my people suffer, how cruel this world can get, how frightening it is for a kid like me. Oh, that's really powerful. Kate, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a really uh, an amazing journey. It's been beautiful to hear the poems and it's also been fascinating to hear your insights into education. Thank you. Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.